Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Black Church, Our Story, Our Song, is the superb new PBS series from Dr. Henry Louis Gates. The programs will soon air on our TV station, PBA. Tremendous excitement surrounds this series, which explores 400 years of the Black Church in America. Later this hour, we'll hear from producer-director Shayla Harris about documenting the role of the Black Church as the epicenter of Black life. First, The Atlanta Ballet has created silver linings in bleak times. With theaters, concert halls, and arts venues shuttered for almost a year now, it's been a tremendous struggle to share the power of performance directly with audiences. Virtual platforms offered opportunities to connect, And the Atlanta Ballet is among the organizations who've adapted to online performance. We're going to hear about their latest choreographic initiative, Silver Linings, from Atlanta Ballet choreographer-in-residence, Claudia Schreier, and Atlanta Ballet dancer, Darian Kane. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thanks for having us. How did this originate? Uh, you know, from my understanding, the, the, the title Silver Linings is, is self-evident, of course, but it is an opportunity to take advantage of a truly unfortunate and devastating situation and shift it to something that creates uh, new creative opportunities for the dancers, for all those involved, Uh, at Atlanta Ballet to create a series of performances that shift focus away from the live performances that we are accustomed to having to uh, a a, a new way of presenting, a new way of creating. And so it's truly the, the, the silver lining is that we are still finding ways to unite in the studio or online um, and, and create art together. Darian, we spoke during 
a November event for Atlanta Ballet, and you addressed the challenges of being socially distant, of just being on the dance floor. Would you reiterate those challenges? Yeah, of course. I think uh, the pandemic has affected ballet companies in a very unique way because much of what we do involves being close to each other and, and touching and partnering. And so we have definitely had to scale that back. And I think, you know, the ballet is learning how to adjust and how to, I guess, innovate what dancing is going to look like for the time being. And, you know, that goes back to Silver Linings. I don't think we would have the opportunity or we would have thought of having dancers turn choreographers and work with our our coworkers in this way to um, maximize projects during this time. So I think that it's it's challenging, but it's also allowed for artistic staff to think of things differently and to come up with solutions. And I think that this solution has been super fun. Um, and I, I'm really happy that it wasn't just a single live stream and that we're expanding on it. And now Claudia is a part of that as well, which is uh, super exciting for the company. And I think it's the best we can do right now. And it's, it's not a bad solution. Claudia, you choreographed Pleiades dance. Would you tell us what the performance is about? Yes, so we are uh, currently in the process of making the ballet. We will be presenting an excerpt uh, for the February Silver Linings performance, and then the full premiere of the 20-minute work will be in March. Uh, and the, 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 the ballet itself, uh, for me, is just a celebration of being able to move again, truly. It is to uh, a series of piano works by a Japanese composer, um, named Takashi Yoshimatsu. And I came across some of the works a number of years ago and uh, when Gennady, the artistic director of Atlanta Ballet, invited me to create a work for this program, I think it was just this craving of mine to infuse a sense of levity and momentum back into our lives. And uh, these, these pieces really spoke to me. And so the the ballet, um, even from a technical standpoint, is created as a series of vignettes to allow for the ever-shifting uh, scheduling and pod reconstruction that we are constantly going through. Uh, the ballet is, it's a COVID ballet in the sense that it is responsive to the times we are in, uh, in how it's being created, but then also uh, allows for these more focused, intricate, small pieces that can then be put together into a larger a larger work. But in terms of how we've been creating it, uh, there have been upwards of 20-something people in split between these two rooms at any given time um, that I'm watching over multiple monitors that Atlanta Ballet has set up in the studio. And then at the outset, we had a morning session and then an afternoon session. And so it's been a, a, a group effort. Uh, even though the final presentation will involve 10 people on stage. Darren, your work is titled Dr. Rainbow's Infinity Mirror. Please tell us <laughs> about the name. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I think I just, I got the idea for this ballet from an album of music that I found. And 
The album is a pet project from the artist Joe Hawley, and it is a collaboration from multiple artists, and they describe it as genre of infinity, along with other themes. They like to deal with a lot of mysticism in the music, and it's quite a whimsical album, and so I kind of wanted to play with that theme of infinity, and I also basically wanted to create um, this world that embodies the creativity of the artists I'm influenced by. And I decided that the idea of that world would be called the infinity mirror. And Dr. Rainbow is this gender neutral sort of right brain creativity fiend. And this character lives inside this world and basically wakes up a, a new life and creates this world as he or she goes and splits um, him or herself into multiple characters and iterations, which are the different facets of this creative character. And then at the end of the day, the world kind of implodes and everything restarts every single day. So it, it's kind of just a very abstract, crazy land. So that's how I put together Dr. Rainbow's Infinity Mirror. Wow. Did you get to see Yayoi Kusama's exhibition when it was on view at the High, the Infinity Mirror? I did not. I was so sad that I didn't. Yeah, I just wondered if that had any influence on your creation of this dance. I, I guess in a sense, because I remember, I mean, I don't know what kid didn't when they were younger sitting on counters in bathrooms and pulling out the medicine cabinet mirror and seeing many versions of yourself. And I was, um, I was a homeschooled kid. So I spent a lot of my time sitting on counters, looking into mirrors and like sewing patches of blankets together. And there's a, there's a lot of childishness in my choreography and a lot of silliness. And so I, I think I, I did actually think of that that sense of seeing infinite amounts of yourself in the mirror and they all can have kind of like different nuances. And I think that did kind of have a hand in, in this like world that I imagined up. Oh, that's wonderful. Of course, I guess um, being in front of that medicine cabinet mirror also prepared you for the floor to ceiling mirrors in a ballet studio. Probably, yeah, I think so. I think also just growing up uh, homeschooled, my parents really wanted me to pick a craft and to stick with it. And if I didn't like what I was doing, I could change it. But they just always wanted me to have some sort of passion. And that is kind of the sole reason I ended up being a ballet dancer for my career, which has been really awesome that they've supported that since I was a young child. Wonderful. Claudia, this collaboration for Silver Linings is with GSU-TV and the Rialto Center. Have they been instructive for you? Have, when you were talking about looking at all these monitors as you were choreographing the ballet, I wondered how much of a crash course you had to have in choreographing for film or live stream. Yes, they have been incredibly helpful. And, um, you know, this is a new frontier for a lot of us. Um, but the opportunity to create 
for either film or live stream or fusion of, of both uh, opens up a lot of opportunities for looking at the works that we are creating in, um, in different ways. And, uh, you know, with the opportunity to have up to eight cameras in a theater, because with the, without the audience there, uh, you can get a, a frame closer to a dancer. Uh, it changes the way you look at shapes that you're creating, the patterns that you're making. Um, any, any number of things can, can shift when you uh, are, are anticipating the multiple angles from which your work will be viewed, as opposed to just from the proscenium. And even within the proscenium, you're always thinking of if the audience is fully house right versus house left, how is this going to read? So there's always that element of it, uh, but it's just exacer exacerbated by um, in a positive way by, by this opportunity. Um, and then on top of that, um, there are a number of things to take into account in terms of the costumes and how that will read on camera, um, how the live stream will be edited versus post-production and, and the difference between that. There's, there are a number of things, but I would say that having the opportunity to capture work and share it to a, a wider audience is another uh, blessing. It's another silver lining to be able to share my work, share Dan Rain's work, which is incredible. I have to say, I've seen previews in some of the live, the, the preview live streams, and she does have a very playful quality and a, a childlike quality, but the maturity and the structure of her work is really something to behold. So I'm excited for audiences to see that as well. I'm so impressed by the way dancers approach narrative and storytelling. It's just not something that I think someone in a general audience thinks about. But the, the depth of your thought and drawing from childlike wonder and experiences is, is very special to your work. Claudia, thinking about what you were saying about the silver lining and uh, the advantage now from becoming a producer, director, choreographer for, for visual record. Can you imagine if there had been a camera at the 1913 premiere of The Rite of Spring? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how we would have experienced that? Yeah, I mean, to, to be able to capture dance the way we do now, um, I think transforms how it's communicated and how it's relayed from dancer to dancer, from company to company. And it's much less word of mouth and much more visual. And so I think that has uh, certainly had an impact on how uh, dance is shared uh, between communities and between cultures. Claudia Schreier. Atlanta Ballet Choreographer-in-Residence, and Darian Kane, Atlanta Ballet Dancer and Choreographer. The next online performances of the Atlanta Ballet Silver Linings will be on February 12th, live-streamed on the Facebook channel of the Rialto Center for the Arts. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. August Wilson's play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, is based on a real-life musician known as the Mother of the Blues. The story is set in a Chicago recording studio in 1927, during the course of a single day. A film version of the play adapted for the screen by Ruben Santiago Hudson was released in December to widespread acclaim. Actor Coleman Domingo plays Cutler, the trombonist and band leader in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, he joined me in December before the movie was released. I asked Coleman Domingo how he approached Wilson's rich text in preparing for this role. It was fun. It was a, a happy space. I think there was um, a sense of greater purpose because we knew we were responding to the incredible text that August Wilson affords us, which is such complexity when it comes to African-American life in the 20th century. And everyone has a complex and interesting arc. No one is just peripheral. We are all, you know, full, fully realized human beings that speak like, that act like, that move like, that respond to things as African-Americans know that African-Americans do. And so I thought it's a great, so it's um, a privilege to be in that room, to be honest. Mm. In this story, Wilson includes dialogue about the meaning of art. Ma says to you, music keeps things balanced. And you sing because that's a way of understanding life. Yeah. And when she says, it would be an empty world without the blues. Without the blues. Oh, God, I have chills now just repeating that line. But the character of Levy, this young trumpeter, believes his new style of music is superior to the blues and bold enough to take on Ma Rainey herself. Why does she resent him? I think because you have one character that is sort of at the end of their career and one at the beginning, and they're asking for the same thing, to be heard, to be seen. I think Ma is examining her own legacy, and I think she's trying to uh, be, I mean, she's already a, a, a woman and a character who is steeped in, <laughs> she's steeped in her own trauma, 
just like everyone else in the, in the play is. She is also a pioneer. I mean, she's in a male-dominated industry. She is an openly gay African-American woman in 1927. Good Lord, she's fighting so many systems. And I think what, what they also got really right, they always describe Ma as looking wet. Her makeup, the grease paint, all that stuff that she was always a little hot. I think she had a fire inside of her and she was just trying to have agency in the world and, and be respected. And because she knew she had talent and she just wanted to um, the world to meet her with that talent. And I think then you have Levy who's trying, you know, he's just, you know, he's trying to innovate. He's trying to, he's, he's saying, no, we should push it forward. We don't have to do that old stuff. We can, he's, he's ready to change the world now. And then you have his other bandmates saying, just give it a minute because I think everyone has their own stuff that they're protective of, that they're trying to unpack, that they're trying to work through. And some of them are just trying to get through the day and just, you know, and have some peace in the world as um, African-American that I, I mean, every single African-American knows that. You're just trying to get some peace in the world and, and find your place. And Levy is, is, is interested in disrupting that to create a new sound and to, and to have, and to say, I demand my work will, I will break through these uh, white supremacist systems. I don't have to believe that. I have new thought. And, and you, so I believe you need a little bit of both. That the, I think the reason why their ideologies are bumping up, up against each other, as well as Cutler and Levy's, is because at the end of the day, I think that's good for progress, you know, in some way. There's some losses with that, but it's basically, you know, this push and pull of people who actually really want the same thing. They're just using, they have very different operating systems in the way they're trying to achieve it. The entire cast is sensational. That sounds like an understatement. It is an ensemble in the best sense of the word. And I know that for many viewers, seeing Ma Rainey will be a sad reminder that it was the last role for the actor Chadwick Boseman, who died just a few months ago at age 43. Coleman, is it painful for you to talk about working with him on this film? Uh, I go back and forth. <laughs> Most of the time, I think it's a, an honor and a joy. And I, I love when I'm able to discuss Chad and his work, and his body of work, his work ethic, his dry wit, his um, sense of purpose, his true sense of purpose. So I, I love talking about that because I also want to remember him um, with all that light that he had and how alive he was. I think that's my last memory of him. I didn't see him when he was ill. I saw him when he was, well, he was ill, but the person that I saw was very much alive and with good humor and great spirit and open. And we, we shared a real brotherhood. And then there are times like, I would even say an hour ago when I, I was preparing myself for some more interviews and uh, you know I'm getting a lot of questions about Chad and I wanted to get some more context. And so I watched his uh, commencement speech uh, for Howard University where he received his doctor of humane letters. And it was a commencement speech, but then he actually turned it into a sermon. And I had to get myself together because um, there were things that I, I knew about Chad and I knew him as an, as an artist, a musician, you know, a comrade who I worked with. But in that speech, in the, in the commencement speech, I saw that he was very clear about his purpose. 
and why he was here on this earth and what he was trying to do and trying to move the dial on all of our humanity. I understood even more so why he was cast as these legends in quick succession. And that's an extraordinary feat for any actor because he had that sense of purpose in him that he wanted to, I don't know, tell great stories about incredible Black men. I didn't want to force you to talk about it if you didn't want to. Oh, no, I, listen, Lois, you and I are old friends now. I don't mind sharing with you. Bless you. Now, though the action takes place in 1927, watching this film is eerie, almost terrifying in how much it relates to our moment in the first few minutes. Ma Rainey is confronted and insulted by a policeman. Coleman, what are your reflections on Ma Rainey as a contemporary story? I think it's always important for us, especially as Americans, to dive deep into history and find out more about ourselves so we can move forward. We, you know, we have amnesia as a country and uh, because it's deeply painful. But I think if we show the systemic problems that have been in place for many years with many individuals, individuals just trying to, you know, find some agency in the world, I think that we could have a bit more empathy to one another, a bit more compassion. I know that I, I, thought, it was, I thought it was very important in the middle of this pandemic and in the middle of so much racial strife when friends were asking, should I read White Fragility and things like that? I said, no, I think I have a list of films you should watch. I want to show you Black life, and especially Black life when white people aren't around and Black people are talking about things that matter to them. So you can see that and see what's in the hearts of people. So it brings you closer to them. You understand their struggle is your struggle and, and understand what, what, what's in place and, and be, be having a more of an awareness of the systems that are in place to keep us behind. And then you can make a choice on how to help move forward and not and be an ally, a true ally, because we need to know each other's families and what makes us hurt and how people try to just move through the world and try to get from point A to point B. And a lot of times, I mean, even in that scene with Ma Rainey, she's just trying to get in to record her album. And just one little, you know, accident uh, in the car, it, throw, it throws everything off and brings the system tumbling down on her and she's just trying to say, and she's just trying to speak her truth, but she's never been allowed to speak, you know? Um, so I think um, she's a great figure to examine. She's a great figure to examine as an artist, as a woman, as a, a gay woman. She's a phenomenal character to examine and, and it's done with so much grace and good humor <laughs> and intelligence. And I love what George C. Wolf, our director has done. He's created this great visual language and this great, um, he's opened up this play in a beautiful, beautiful way that I feel like is a gift to everyone. Actor Coleman Domingo plays the role of Cutler, the trombonist and band leader in the film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's streaming on Netflix. For her role as Ma Rainey, Viola Davis, has received a Golden Globe Best Actress nomination. Chadwick Boseman was nominated for Best Actor in Film Drama. The entire cast is 
outstanding. There is tremendous excitement about the Black Church, Our Story, Our Song, a new documentary series from Dr. Henry Louis Gates, soon to air nationwide on PBS. Shayla Harris is an award-winning independent director and producer for the series. She joins us now via Zoom. Shayla Harris, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Early in the series, the Reverend Al Sharpton describes the Black Church as the epicenter of Black life. How does this series illustrate the role of the Black Church beyond its importance as a spiritual home? Well, Reverend Al Sharpton is is correct. From the moment that Black people arrived on these shores, the Black Church as an institution, whether that's in the form of hush harbors, which are these spaces in forests that that slaves snuck off to to convene together um, to uh, the sort of iconic churches that we ended up visiting in the series like Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was the home of Martin Luther King. The Black Church has been the center of the community that provided not just the spiritual center, but also at a time when the community wasn't free, it offered political space, it offered economic space, it offered a cultural space for people to create community and build what we kind of stated in the the second episode was a nation within a nation. It, It was the first home of education. So some of the earliest HBCUs, some of whom we know today, like Spelman, grew out of church basements. It was the first place of political engagement where people came together. And after Reconstruction, a number of the first Black politicians were actually ministers and preachers. And certainly, when we think about the cultural expression within the Black community, the music, spirituals, gospel, all of that emerged out of this really iconic institution. Hmm. The very phrase, the Black church, suggests a single entity. African-American Christians, historically and today, are not monolithic. How is that demonstrated in this series? And that's a really important point. The Black church is not a monolith. In fact, a lot of the early Christians who came over from Africa had some of their faith practices that they brought with them, including Islam, which was integrated into a new form of Christianity that the slaves developed. And, you know, over time, uh, a number of denominations and a number of different kinds of fracturing of that Christianity that appealed to a lot of different people started to emerge. You know, you have Black Methodists, you have Black Baptists, you even have Black Catholics like myself. And so as the community grew and, and needed different things, the faith spectrum <laughs> expanded. Hmm. For enslaved people in America, Christianity was the religion of the oppressor. How does this series show the ways in which Black people adapted African beliefs, honored the ancestors, and translated them into a form of Christianity that reflected themselves? Well, that's an incredible part of our exploration. 
and one of the really uh, illuminating things that we learned in the series was that some of the early Christians did bring their faith practices from Africa. Some of that included Islam, in fact, and we visited a church that included writings and, and symbols that reflected that tradition. The early Africans saw in that book the story of Exodus and, and saw a parallel with their own experience and in fact transposed themselves into that story and that narrative. And, and so we see even in the you know 1800s where people are talking about God is a Negro, God is Black, uh, that story of their oppression is reflected in the narrative and, and that, you know, it continued to emerge even in the 20th century where there was these iconographies of a Black Jesus. And so what the Black Christians did was sort of take that story and use it to help with their survival, help with their political engagement, and transformed what would have been a slave religion into something really incredibly powerful. Being told by Southern white Baptist preachers that they weren't really worthy of Christianity in the sense that the Southern Baptists embraced it. I can only imagine the fortitude it took to maintain those beliefs. Yeah, I mean, it show, really shows the power of faith and, and what it can do for people to, to help them survive such sort of emotional degradation and physical oppression. And, you know, it really reflects the belief, the strong belief um, that those early Christians had in a loving God and a forgiving God and a, a God that could help them, free them from, from bondage. And, you know, I think that sort of belief and that faith and that commitment and that dedication is something that's really infused into the fabric of the church and why it has had such a powerful history for all of these 400 years. Would you talk about Henry McNeil Turner? Yeah, so Henry McNeil Turner was a, is a fascinating character who started out as a, a chaplain during the Civil War, preaching to um, some of the Black soldiers who had joined the Union effort to, to free the slaves. You know, he became a really powerful bishop in the AME Church, which is one of the, the earliest and first Black denominations uh, that was created uh, in the Americas. And, you know, he helped spread the gospel of the AME Church, building churches all across the South in Georgia, uh, where he came from, and, you know, became sort of, you know, his sort of arc is the arc of um, Black Christianity in the 1800s. Um, he he eventually coins the term God is a Negro, which is this notion that God is of the oppressed and God reflects the Black community and understands their story and sees their story uh, as his own and eventually passes on as a, a really influential and powerful religious figure in the Black community. The documentary is in two parts, a total of four hours I can only imagine how daunting it was to whittle it down to that. Would you talk about the division into sections and chapters? 
Yeah, so as you can imagine, 400 years of history is an overwhelming task. And certainly there's a, a number of stories that we weren't able to include, but we felt like it was important to, to break down the story in a, in a couple different ways. We started with the Atlantic slave trade, which is the beginning of the, the Black presence in the Americas. And that was a way of exploring what life was like under slavery and how those early Black Christians adapted and evolved the Bible of the enslavers to something that was really powerful for themselves to help them survive this oppression. The second chapter moves to emancipation and, and what freedom, freedom brought and how that evolved in the development of the independent institution of the church that helped provide economically, educationally, socially, as well as spiritually for a community that was emerging from bondage and sort of finding its way in the world. And as that institution developed, we moved to the third hour, which is, I think, a period that a lot of people know about, which is uh, the emergence of the church and its really prominent role in the civil rights movement and in sort of transforming the American political landscape. But we also use that episode to talk about this sort of really powerful cultural dominance that the Black church sort of develops in and around gospel music and making that accessible both through race records and the radio and um, in all kinds of technological ways. And the final chapter, episode four, looks at the, the life in the church after the civil rights movement, when the church is sort of at a crossroads about what it means to the community and how it starts to explore and fracture in a lot of political and social ways and trying to find its space and, and, and what it continues to mean for a community that has a lot of different needs at that time. So, you know, it's, I think it's really going to be fascinating for people to learn about that particular moment in the, the Black church's history. And, you know, we really hope that at the end of this, people take away that as the community has grown and developed, the Black church has reflected those needs. As with other PBS series, the educational outreach, the suggested readings, where to go for more information, I know that this series will spark a tremendous amount of interest in those materials. The documentary subtitle is Our Story, Our Song. Would you talk about the significance of music in the Black church? Yes, uh, music is part and parcel of the story and fabric of the, of the Black church. The subtitle, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, comes from a really popular hymn, Blessed Assurance, that we basically had every gospel singer that we uh, interviewed sing to us. And uh, so there's a lot of interesting renditions floating around in our archive tape. But music is, is there from the very beginning um, when you talk about spirituals during slavery and the power and the significance that those songs had, the messages that they transmitted. It was there from the very beginning. And then you have things like gospel that with choirs and records that people could certainly play at home and you have you know, really incredible performers like Mahalia Jackson, who, if you haven't heard her, like, you know, run out and, and get it right away because her voice just reaches into the, the depths of your soul. Lee. 
Music conveys a lot of things. It conveys the pain of some of the experiences of the Black community in America, but it also connotes a, a spirit of overcoming and triumph. And so the music uh, reflects both of those things. And that's why I think it's such a powerful thread in our series. Oh, it is stunning. If I could be personal for a moment, when I was a little girl growing up in Chicago, there used to be a show that Mahalia Jackson had before the so-called prime time, I guess, daytime programming would come on. I think it was 6.30 on a Saturday morning, and I loved to watch her. I just felt transfixed. And I knew nothing about her about the connection about what she was singing and the part in this series where you address the Edwin Hawkins singers of Oakland how their recording of Oh Happy Day became a hit and the tension between Saturday night and Sunday morning just resonated so beautifully because this love of God and the dominance of faith can't be removed from the singing, can it? I mean, how could anyone believe that that's profane? Yeah. No, it's a it's an incredible question, and that was uh, certainly a tension within the church about whether that music, that spiritual music, that powerful music that, you know, in a lot, a lot of people's belief is God's message only belongs within the confines of the church, or if God's message needs to be spread to, uh, you know, people outside of the church who may not actually um, come into those four walls, and that, you know, a song like Oh Happy Day, which is like, a, you know, a beautiful, joyous expression of that belief, you know, was played on the radio and, you know, got a Grammy and, and reached audiences beyond the church's four walls, which in some ways is a kind of evangelical work to kind of spread the, the good news. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus walked. Oh, when he walked. When Jesus So there was that tension within the church about, you know, Saturday nights and Sunday morning and, you know, what, you know whether those uh, things could be reconciled in a way. But, you know, what we discovered in the series is that that tension between those two things created this really powerful music. You think about gospel and how, you know, the early gospel from Thomas Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson was influenced by the blues, the great 
Cthulhu's music and how there is this kind of cross-pollination uh, between the sort of sacred and the and the secular, which is, you know, the story of <laughs> the story of life is that tension between the sacred and the secular. In 2018, the Pew Research Center found that more than half of all Black adults in the U.S. are classified as members of the historically Black Protestant tradition, including African Methodist Episcopal or the Church of God in Christ. Shayla, you mentioned your background is Catholic. Was it strictly geographical? I mean, Catholicism is a minority religion in the South. Is it geographical, or were there other reasons African Americans gravitated toward Protestant views rather than Catholic? That's a really great question. I mean, I think some of it is is geographical and, and what's, you know, sort of in the community that, that people were exposed to. But I think for um, a lot of people at the time of the emergence of some of the Black denominations, they wanted to go to a place that was run by people who looked like them, understood their background. It was sort of a for us, by us kind of option. And, you know, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, when it first emerged, really appealed to people for that reason. They felt like that that practice uh, of the Methodist faith in particular was really sensitive to where Black people were coming from. And that's what they wanted to see reflected in their experiences on Sunday and their experiences in, in the pews. Um, so I think that accounts for a lot of the appeal and attraction of, of those early denominations. And then you had one of the most preeminent denominations like the Church of God in Christ that emerged at the end of the 18th century, which not only was a for us, by us scenario, but also embraced African traditions, African music, these uh, sort of retentions that had been sort of stamped out of these other denominations. And, you know, it exploded. Hundreds of millions of people flocked to that denomination and, and really saw themselves in that. And so I think what we found is that Black Christians really wanted to see themselves in their faith practices. And I think that's why uh, they were drawn to some of those early Black denominations. The documentary addresses shortcomings of the Black church regarding homosexuality, abuse, and various social justice movements. I was fascinated by the discussion of Nanny Helen Burroughs. Why was the late 19th century known as the women's era in the Black church? Well, that period is a fascinating period, and Nanny Helen Burroughs is one of the, the most intriguing people that we explored in the series. What what we really found was in that period in the late 1800s, you know, after Reconstruction starts to collapse, um, the Black community really turns inward and, and becomes a, a, you know, a nation within a nation that is trying to figure out how to survive in this country. And um, the women who have always been the backbone of the, the Black church really see this as a pivotal moment to be pushing some of the things they believe are instrumental to um, the uplift of the community, um, not just in terms of education and in terms of economic development, but also social development. So whether that's temperance or 
making sure women are, are feeling respected when they're out there and um, if they are working women that they are earning decent pay and and not being exploited in those ways and so she and others like herself really wanted to push the church to be at the forefront of those activities and when some of them found that the church wasn't as receptive as they had hoped, a lot of them um, started to develop what became known as the club women's movement. So the National Association of Colored Women and, and other organizations like, like that really started to take on those activities sort of within a secular realm. So there are these kinds of competing institutions that are emerging within the Black community to deal with those issues um, when they felt like the church wasn't expansive enough for that idea. In that chapter, we hear about her righteous discontent. Indeed. It, it reminded me of John Lewis and his good trouble. <laughs> That's a great parallel. A great parallel. <laughs> Just brought that to mind. Dr. Henry Louis Gates has been our guide to so much knowledge and richness about Black history. Shayla, can you talk about the personal importance of this series in the canon of his work? Yeah, no, Dr. Gates has been instrumental in sort of shining a light on a lot of history that has been overlooked. It hasn't been taken as seriously as, as it should be. And this exploration, I thought, was really profound in, in how personal uh, it was for him. One of the earliest things that we did was went back with him to his family's church that he grew up in and the church that his mom attended in West Virginia. And it, it's one of the most emotional moments that I've ever experienced. And, um, you know, certainly I think our audiences will be moved by that that feeling of coming home, you know, the prodigal son sort of coming home and being embraced by his community and you could go home again, but, you know, despite all of his years uh, away from that place, it was as if he never left. And, you know, I think in some ways that is reflective of the history of the church and the black experience that even, um, you know, even in our contemporary era where a lot of people have drifted away from the church, don't necessarily attend as regularly when things, you know, hit a certain kind of point, the church is the place that people gather. And, you know, I think Dr. Gates saw and felt that personally and felt that that was a really important thing for to, to throw open the, the veil for people to understand how important this institution has been in, in our development in, in America. producer Shayla Harris. 
is part of the creative team for the new PBS series with Dr. Henry Louis Gates, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. You are invited to join PBA tomorrow at 4 p.m. for our station's special virtual event, Rose Scott of WABE's Closer Look will be in conversation with Shayla Harris ahead of the documentary's nationwide premiere. More information about the event and where to RSVP is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Monday at 11 a.m., our guests include Rabbi Michael Lapidus. He'll share his new song inspired by the recent presidential inauguration. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Have a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.